Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. So in Ephesians 5, going through those four chapters, we have we are saved, we have an inheritance. Ephesians 2, we were dead, now we're alive. Ephesians 3, there's an eternal mystery that Christ is our life and we can have a new life in Christ. And Ephesians 4, Paul says basically walk worthy of that calling. There's nothing else that we should be doing with our time. Walk worthy. In chapter 4, verse 14, uh, we don't because we want to walk worthy, if we're walking worthy, we won't get tossed to and fro. And if we're doing what Christ has called us to do, we don't get bashed back and forth by the different waves that take a boat and slosh it from side to side. It just means we know how to weather a storm, right? So one, we join the body, and in that we get strength and constitution. And if we think differently, and we are walking worthy and understanding the eternal mystery, we get intelligence and wisdom through the Holy Spirit. And in, 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 the, in the third sense, when we start to walk worthy, we talk and act different, uh, we basically have a higher charisma. And we start doing things in Christ, it changes who we are in our strength, in our intelligence, and in our disposition with other people. Now in, in, in chapter four, that walking worthy piece are Paul's directions for life, and that's where we pick up in chapter five. If we want to mature in Christ, we need to walk in love, walk in the light, and walk in wisdom. And, and, and then at the end of this chapter, we're going to have this how to be married and use marriage as an image that ministers and bears witness to other people around us. So that our marriages in the church are things that people want in their own life. Um, so we'll start off, Paul starts off with this idea, is if you want to walk worthy, then you need to start by walking in love. And that's one of the ways in which we distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world. Verse 1, chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. As Christ has loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Um, you know, again, this comes out of the idea where in, in the last chapter, um, the last verse, four thir verse 32, it said, be kind as Christ forgave you. And now it says, walk in love as Christ also loved us. You notice how Paul, every time he asks us to do something, he's using Christ as a model. Because Christ did this, we should do this. And because we're not Christ, we have to find ways to do those things that Christ did for us to other people around us. And this chapter just builds that idea. Verse, the, the first word, therefore, uh, therefore, be is actually the Greek word genomi, which means to become, almost from the root word of Genesis, uh, to come, become something over time or to let time pass so that you can arise into something. Therefore, be. It's not just a static be. It's a be that is one of generation or creation. So if we're walking worthy, we will be created over time as an imitator of God. An imitator is mementes. It's the same word that we get mimic from. 
to mimic something or to be like something else is action-based. So when you put those together, be imitators. Paul is using very particular Greek words here with this idea of you become something over time as you imitate Christ, right? That becoming happens. The walking worthy isn't something we can make on our own. God has to turn us into something and he has to do the work. That's why Christians say we have a new life in Christ. It's not that we made our own life. We're not God, but we become something different. And when you watch that happen to yourself and watch yourself heal on areas of your life and watch yourself become more powerful in other areas of life and watch yourself become more like Christ in your love and in your joy and in your peace, it's hard to understand that if you're not walking worthy. So at least that's what Paul's saying. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And the dear children here is agapetos, or it's a, you know, what we would say, agape is the word for love, and agapetos is like a, an affectionate name, like we would say, my little lovies, right? And that's what Paul's saying. Be imitators of God as lovies, as just fans, dear children, not just kids, but dear children, the kids that are cute and adorable and wonderful and easy to have. God has lots of kids in his family, and we're a child in Christ. There are good children in Christ, and there are children that just drive God nuts. And God takes both of them lovingly and mercifully into the family. But wouldn't it be nice if we were dear children, if we were the kids that were God's favorites because we didn't give him a hard time, we didn't fight him on everything that we're supposed to fight him on, and we just walked in love? Um, Dear children, don't be annoying. (laughs) Be naturally uh, imitating your parent in heaven just like little dear children imitate their parents in real life, like dear children. So like children, another idea, and Christ said, you know, if you want to come into the kingdom, uh, assuredly I say to you, unless you've converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18.3. If Jesus said we're supposed to be like children, and Paul is saying we're supposed to be like children, that's a concept we should tune into. So how does that work? Why do you do this? When can I be that sort of thing? Or a kid that even asks questions like, can I try that? Can I do that too? And that's how children in the kingdom start to act. You go to church and you see mature believers and you say, wow, that's amazing. And, and things just start coming out of their mouth, out of the, you know, in the spirit where they start being thankful and saying, praise the Lord. And they're happy to be around people and they greet each other um, with hugs and affection that's sincere. And you start saying, man, how do, I want to do that too. And you start mimicking it first until it becomes who you are. So uh, first you fake it and then you make it. So be like kids, be imitators uh, as you do this and walk in love, verse two. Uh, Parapeto is to walk around or to tread as though it's proof that you can do it, right? So when he says dear children and then he says walk in love, he's using a word in the Greek that's kind of the word you use for a little kid when they take their first steps. And they say, look, mom, I can walk. And they would say that sort of thing and that they're walking in love. So when you have unconditional love and children that are agapetos um, and they're unconditionally loved kids and they have that parental love there, then you have a relationship that looks like the relationship we should have to God, where we just ask God, can we try this? Can we do this? Look, God, I'm walking. I'm starting to love on people the way you loved on people. I'm starting to have affection and care for people like you did. And it's not something I have to pretend or fake. It's just an honest change in my heart. 
offering, uh, and it says, as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice. I thought it was interesting that sacrifices are obligatory. If you look at Leviticus 1 through 5, the sacrifices that Paul's talking about in, in the Jewish Mosaic system are, are things you have to do. But offerings are things that you don't have to do, right? And a lot of times when people are arguing with the faith or arguing with God once they're in the faith, it's about what I can and can't do. And that's the thing that I think kind of makes you not an, a, a, a dear children, right? Is when you're constantly arguing with your father in heaven about what you can do and what you can't do. If that's really what's in your heart and you just really want to be doing those other things, uh, that's not really an offering. So there's things that God demands of his children. You will not murder. You will not do these things. Um, and there's things that are just those loving offerings. You know, like when a kid draws their parent a crayon drawing. And I think when we do something kind for someone that we know that's in need and we just give them an act of love and mercy, when we share encouraging words with people, it's like we're given a crayon drawing to God. Look, God, I'm taking my first steps. It's a beautiful thought that Paul writes. Frankly, I just love this for literature, right? To God for a sweet smelling aroma. Throughout the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, when a sacrifice or an offering is done right, it's a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. It's just that beautiful fragrance, like Italian bread cooking or uh, a good, strong incense where you just breathe it in and you think, that just smells delicious. Hot tea. Um, those things, that, or frankly, a good barbecue, and you can smell it from a mile away. Sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord is when we do things out of our heart, out of love, as Christ loved us, God just sees beauty starting to pop up all over the world. And that's part of the plan is that we live in fellowship with God and we just start blessing people that God loves. So we see that all over. God's delighted when we give as we're told to give as God's instructed us to do it. So Paul's going to give some instructions here. What we give to God matters, right? Verse 3. Paul contrasts that this is the option, and I'm just going to read it, but fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as it is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather of giving thanks. What comes out of our mouth is just praise. And I think that's really neat. As you see people mature in the faith, and they are in the word and God's reshaping their mind, they start to look, go through their life and see what God has planned for them. And you start to understand, oh, God was using that moment, that flat tire to give me a moment with the guy at the tire store and using that to build the kingdom. That those things that happen that the rest of the world just feels stress and anxiety about, a believer knowing that we're in God's hands just sees the beauty of God's touch and what he's doing. And then the contrast, Paul says, but don't do these nasty things that the rest of the world is defined by. Like being unclean, just constantly breaking the law in ways that the Lord, it's just, you know, the Lord still loves you. You know, if you're serving him, you've given your life to him. But man, it's just uncleanness. It's not fitting for a saint to be unclean. It destroys your witness. Nobody wants to be like you when you have the same prison, uh, you're, you're enslaved to sin in the same way they are. Um, covetousness, constantly wanting stuff all the time. I want this and I want that and I have to have this and wouldn't it be nice to have that? That covetousness is just not becoming of a saint. Be satisfied with what you're given. Has God given you food and a roof and clothes to wear? Then great. 
And if he hasn't, by the way, go to the church and ask for help. <laughs> but if you have your basic needs provided for, be thankful in all things, right? And let that be what comes out of your mouth. It comes down to the language we use and how we represent Christ as we walk worthy and how we show ourselves to be Christians to other people, right? So pride, lust, and greed generally destroy the Christian witness. And that's what we have here, these just ideas. Um, foolish talking, coarse jesting, just the way we speak and the way we say things. Nobody that lives in sin presents an example to other people of a better way to live. But when you pass on those things, you're at work and everybody's telling dirty jokes and you're just like, I'm not down for dirty jokes. You might be called a party pooper when you do that, but don't let your joy be sapped when you do it. Just say, I'd rather spend my time lifting people up than tearing them down. And that convicts people in one way. It also draws people in that are ready to have a different kind of life. When they've looked at their life and they've seen the fruitlessness of it, they're going to turn to the person who stands for something, who is something in Christ because Christ has changed their heart. The no foolish talking thing, you know, to somebody who likes to talk, that's convicting. Don't let a word come out of your mouth that is without thought because you present yourself to be fool. And fools don't necessarily represent their king very well. To joke around when other people are being serious or trying to be real, it's just foolish talking. It's out of context. It's being uncomfortable with the depth of a conversation and asking real and serious questions. To constantly be joking and being, being the fool in the room. The coarse jesting. Uh, the, the, the implication of those words is that there's a sexual overtone to it. It's people who tell dirty jokes, right? Be a saint instead of being somebody who, who celebrates sinfulness. The giving of thanks is a gratefulness that guides our tongue and how we're disposed to other people. And that's when things happen when you can say things that are words of encouragement, that what comes out of your mouth is a tool for the kingdom. Think about when you say to somebody, I'm really thankful you're in my life. You're a blessing to me. That thing you just did was a total blessing to me. It really encouraged me. You're encouraging the kind of behavior and the kind of actions that make a, a, a godliness. And when new believers come meet a group of believers that are always giving thanks, and they're just saying, praise God for this and praise God for that, it just rolls off the tongue as a, as a veteran believer because God's given you a heart of thanks. So you don't have to fake it when all you see is stuff that you're grateful for. Because you've seen God do work, and you've seen it become wonderful, even when in the, in the worst of times you've seen God work through it. And you know that God's doing all things for the glory of God. Verse 5. For this you know, no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. These verses, I can't think of how much more clear it gets that if you want to be in the kingdom of God, you shouldn't have part in any of these things. Fornication, sex, unclean person, pride, you think that your rules are better than God's, or a covetous man, greed, pride, uh, pride, lust, and greed. Who is an idolater? You're worshiping other things in the world more than the God Almighty. So you got an option. You can go the world's way where it's empty and dead and it leads to conflict and desperation and hopelessness, or you can choose to walk worthy 
And that's what Paul in this whole letter of Ephesians is hoping for his brothers and sisters in Ephesus. Walk worthy. It's so much better than the other option. And it makes it so, verse 6, no one deceives you. Because if you're in the word and you're with other believers, you don't get hooked into sin as much, right? Birds of a feather flock together, so flock with other believers. Sin is putting yourself above God in any way, shape, or form. And in verse 5, that idea is the people that sin don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. You won't go to heaven if you put other things in front of God. He wants your heart. And it's that simple. The difference between different kinds of believers is, well, what does that mean to give God our heart? To what degree do we, do we give it to him where we're freakish? You know, where we're, we don't, we're not even part of this world anymore because we're so committed to God that we just don't get it. And we haven't seen the most current movie or the newest TV show. We haven't even heard of that band that makes coarse jokes in their music. Yeah, that's what it's saying. And, it, and it's pretty black and white. You're either all in for the kingdom or you don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Right? If that's convicting and the Bible steps on your toes... I beseech you, move your toes. It's so much better to be in the kingdom. That's The option is just different. If you walk in love, you're not deceived by people that hate. If you walk with forgiveness in your heart towards others, then when you meet an unforgiving person, they don't lure you astray to their ridiculous ideas. And you can joyfully go through your life. If you're not welcome because of that, you can go on and be with people that welcome you. And you make choices because we are constantly fishers of men, looking for men and women that want to be with God and join the family of the kingdom of God and share in the inheritance of God. I think sometimes when I meet other brothers and sisters in the church that are depressed, that are angry, that are disgruntled with the church, they don't like what the church is doing and how it's doing it, one of the questions is, well, what's the option? What's the other choice? And to what degree do we make the church because of what kind of people we are? Is it just our pastor's job to do these things? No. What I read here is he's talking to an entire church body of people saying, walk worthy, do things different, walk in love, and walk in the light, which is coming up. That empty words piece is the contrast because these words are filled with the Holy Spirit. These are words to live by. So you can trust that God knows what he's talking about, or you can trust the way the world wants us to live and act and talk and the things the world wants to worship. You know, if they want to build another stadium, go for it. I'm not going to stop you, but I'd rather spend time with God's people praising and giving thanks for what God has done, to watch God at work in people's lives, to see miracles. Those are the kinds of things that I can take with me when I die but I can't take the, the, the latest concert with me when I go. So what do I worship? What do I spend my time on? Empty words. Don't let anyone deceive you with empty words. Kinos in the Greek. Vain words or generally self-serving words. Empty words, I don't think captures in the English what it does in the Greek. Empty words are ones where people are pretty much trying to elevate themselves. And they may even do it in the context of, well, I love other people, therefore we should do this and this and this. But it's really what they want to do. And they're empty words. They're vessels that contain nothing. They're actions that result in nobody coming to Christ. Right? 
their behaviors and arguments in the church that lead to no one getting to know Christ better. And all they do is create a bad mimicry of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ didn't say those kinds of things. He didn't complain about those kinds of things. He didn't critique other people on those kinds of things. They're empty words and they don't have fruit to them. The other kinds of words, those words of thanks, actually bear fruit and bear life and build friendships and build hope and build peace so that we can partake. Therefore, don't be partakers with them. To partake is to consume what they are consuming, to eat literally. And Paul's not talking about food here. He's talking about spiritual things that you eat. Whenever you spend time partaking of what the world is partaking of, you're consuming their diet. If all you do is listen to stuff that has naughty language in it, you're going to have a hard time getting rid of naughty language in your, in your voice. And you're not going to represent Christ to the world very well if you're cursing like a sailor. Let your words be noble and let, let them be good and edifying and admonishing people. So contrast this idea of partaking with the world with going back to Ephesians 3.6 where it says partaking in the kingdom. So Paul's balancing his ideas. In, in, in 3.6, he's saying, I want you to partake in the kingdom. And here he's saying, don't partake with the world. So pick who you want to be with, either them or me, like Moses said. <laughs> Walk in the light. Verse 8, you were, therefore you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruits of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it's shameful to even speak of those things which are done by them in secret. So, my commentary was a waste of time. Paul pretty much says it, right? You were in darkness, now you're in light. Don't partake with the darkness, partake with the light. And he contrasts the good and the bad. There's fruit of the Spirit, which we get to in other parts. It's all goodness and righteousness and truth. Or you can have what the world is shoveling. Right? And, and for Paul, the option's not even comparable. Like the choice is a wise person picks the goodness, righteousness, and truth over the nastiness. So where Paul condemns sin, here he also encourages other things. Uh, a few things to note on this. For you were once darkness. He doesn't say you were once in darkness. He says you were darkness. We are darkness but it doesn't flip on the other side of verse 8, the other side of that sentence. But now you are light in the Lord. So we were darkness, but now we're in the Lord. In other words, we're not light. We, were, we are darkness. And a, a basic study of humanity throughout the Bible is to admit that humans, as humans, we are sinners. So we're not in sin, we are sinners. So we don't apologize for a misdeed, we apologize for our heart wanting to do that misdeed or even having a direction towards that. But when we're in the light, all of that stuff that was in our heart gets brought to the light and exposed and evaporates. So if we confess our sins, God forgives them. If we are accountable to a brother or sister or a husband or a wife or a, a, a friend or a, a, a someone in the, in the church, uh, a cousin, if we have people that we share our lives with and they know when we screw up and make mistakes, that darkness has no power, nor does it, it never bears fruit, and now it doesn't have power either. So walk in love with other people and walk in the light so that you can do those kinds of things. 
It's shameful to even speak of those things which are done in secret. Verse 12, sin thrives in secret places. The parts of our life where we struggle to walk with the Lord the most are the parts of our life where nobody else sees. Because somehow we think, even if God sees us in sin, he'll forgive us for that sin. But if we have hearts that keep desiring that sin because we're not walking in the light, then we have some troubles in our walk. And if we are partaking in those things voluntarily and we're not fighting against them, you know, I'll go back to verse 5. They don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of God. That should be convicting even to mature believers that we need to fearfully work out our faith. And we need to know that at the end of the day, we are doing everything we can do to walk in the light. We're giving ourselves every piece of equipment to do that. So if we want to have a witness, if you want to see the Holy Spirit really move in your life, having a Spirit-filled life, here's what you got to do. Verse 13, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Okay, first, get the sin out of your life and then put light on things in your life that you need help with. I think the most effective thing to get something that I'm convicted out of out of my life is to just ask the Lord to get it out of my life or make someone in my life see it so that I feel totally shameful about it. If I got things hidden, help them to be revealed, Lord, because I don't have the courage to reveal them myself. So help that to just get screwed up where other people can see it and I can be convicted enough to get it out of my life. So let me have the consequences so that I need to see that. Or Lord, just take it and change my heart so I don't even want those things anymore. The reproved piece is to convict or to find fault with someone else. So in verse 13, all things that are reproved, all things that have been shown to be false or admonished are called out by the church as wrong behavior. And I think Paul puts this in here as a catch-all all things that are reproved, knowing that as time passes and cultures change and contexts shift, that there's going to be things that are just different that he's not going to be able to name, but the church will have some guidance on those things. Mature believers in the church will say, maybe that shouldn't be part of what we do as the church. And when those things happen and they're shown to be false, reproved, then they should be made manifest by the light. You tell the whole congregation, you show everybody so that those things can be made aware of to people. Now and then churches will stop what they're doing and they'll say, we need to talk about this thing that's happening in the news or this new trend that's happening in pulp culture. And we want our congregation to be aware of these things so that we can shed some light on them and you know what you're putting your money and your time into. Um, do you know that the people who fund this thing that you're spending money on do these kinds of things? And that's important for the church to understand or to shed light on things that are sin and of the kingdom of darkness uh, and, and that God can reveal that to us and show us what it is so that we can be in his light. Not our own, because we don't have light, but God's light. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So likely, that phrase, because it's in quotes, uh, and it says, he says, and we don't know when Jesus said that specifically, Paul's either paraphrasing or that's a song that they were singing in the early church. It's a worship song. And they were kind of singing it, kind of like if we were, you know, the one today where it says, I came out of that grave, um, or there ain't no grave that's going to hold me down. And he was kind of quoting one of those kind of worship songs so the people in Ephesus would have known it because they sang the song together. 
Sleeping people never know when they're sleeping, right? You often can, you even not often fall asleep and you cut yourself awake and you don't really remember falling asleep in particular. That's the thing about sleeping. You're just unaware. You're oblivious. And I think most of my friends from high school and college, a lot of them that aren't walking with the Lord, it's because they're just kind of oblivious to it, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Sleeping people are comfortable. Sleeping people can walk in their sleep. They can talk in their sleep. There's even people that can sing in their sleep. They can even think to a degree in dreams. You can process and mentally make decisions in your sleep, but you're still asleep. You're in your safety blanket. Um, you can be comfortable there as long as you can be fed and, and maybe even take restroom breaks now and then. And that's the thing with sleeping people spiritually too. You don't know you're asleep spiritually. You just wake up four years later and realize you've not, there's been no fruit in your life. You've discipled no one. You've blessed no one. You've taught no one the word. You've written no songs. You've done nothing that would be things that happen out of the spirit. And you're just wasting your life. The empty words theme comes back. <laughs> I think of my dog Shadow when he's sleeping. Um, I think in Shadow's dreams as a golden retriever dog, he thinks he's the most amazing dog in the world when he's in his dreams. Because we watch him dreaming and his little legs will twitch and he thinks he's running through his dreams. And Shadow will even bark and he'll kind of do sleep barks. There'll be this kind of like... Woof, woof, woof. Thing. So they're not real barks, but they're sleeping barks. And I wonder if he's dreaming about chasing antelope in the Yukon or, or chasing a deer through the woods or he's barking away bad guys from the house. Whatever he does in his dreams, I think Shadow thinks he's a hero. I think he thinks in his dreams he is the cat's meow well, or the dog's bark, that he's the biggest thing that there's there. But when he wakes up, he's just a house dog. And that's the sad part about sleeping too. You can do all sorts of things that look like real life when you're sleeping. And really all those things that look like they're real life in your dreams, they're awesome and you're such a contributor and you're such a blessing to the church and your family. But in reality, your life's decaying all around you and there's a little piece of you that knows that you're sleeping. That if you could just wake up, you'd realize you're just a house dog, right? God's station for us in the church is likely in humility, not in the heroism of our dreams. Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. You're not your own light. You're not the hero of the story. Jesus is. And that's a humility that Christians have to have. And to have it, you've got to wake up and realize you're not chasing away the bad guys. You're not saving the good guys. You're doing nothing and years are passing, and months are passing, and weeks are passing. I tell you, when I woke up, I realized I'd wasted 15 years of my life that I could have been doing this, teaching the Word and sharing it with my friends and my family. I could have been doing other things like going out and visiting my neighbors and just walking around and building and, and, and contributing to people's lives, helping them move, helping them do things, projects they want to do. You can build fellowship and those kinds of things. And when you're wide awake, you're not Billy Graham preaching to the audience, right? When you're wide awake, you're loving your family and your friends. And you're doing your work with diligence and honesty. And you're doing it to the glory of God. And he sees what you're doing. And he will give you light when you do that. 
you will feel God's presence in your life because you're obeying him. You're walking in worthy steps, avoiding darkness. And then verse 15, we keep building on this idea. Then see then that you walk circumspectly. Great word, acrobos. Circumspectly means exactly and precisely and thoughtfully. See then that you walk diligently and you don't deviate from the law. That's what acrobos means. You, you follow it to the T. See then that you walk circumspectly with intention, not as fools, but as wise people. If you want a large discussion of what wisdom looks like, read the Proverbs. Uh, study the difference because this is what God's asking you to do. If the joy of the Lord is our strength and the wisdom is the fear of the Lord, it's the truth that matters a lot. And if we walk circumspectly, we have to know what God says is wise, which forces you to read the Bible. 16, redeeming the time because the days that are evil. If you don't, if you're first trying to walk with the spirit in your life, first get the darkness. Don't walk in darkness. Don't partake in darkness. Get that crap out of your life. Second, walk circumspectly like a wise person. And I think Paul knows if you want to learn what that is, you've got to go back and read Leviticus and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Start studying what God says with intention, not as a foolish person just flopping through life, but with some intention to your life, circumspectly, to walk perfectly. And I don't think Paul's, Paul never makes the claim that we can be perfect. In fact, he says the opposite. But the goal of perfection he uses often in his writings. There's a race that we're trying to run and win when we do things. And that doesn't mean we're going to run it perfectly or at light speed, but you run with intention. You run with that understanding that you might miss the mark, but you're going to try with everything you have in you to pursue and chase after God. Like it's all that matters in life. Fools will exaggerate how they, important they are to other people or they think less of themselves than God does. So to walk like a fool is to think you're a bigger deal than you are or on the flip side to think you, that you're worthless. And neither, neither one of those are the truth of God. Right? The truth of God is you're a sinner saved by grace and you are what God made you. You're his creation. And if you're not partaking in darkness, then over the years and the months and the decades, he will turn you into something that's beautiful. We walk in his light, not as foolish people, but as wise people, and that redeems the time. You don't waste years of your life like I did. Don't do it. Fools will take a lot of their life and waste it by pretending they're a big deal or pretending they're worthless and living outside of the truth. But by, to walk circumspectly is to buy back your time. To redeem is the same meaning as when Christ bought us, he redeemed us. To redeem something is to cash in that check, to hand them your coupon, and to collect your money. Your time that God gives you is to be redeemed and purchased back. It's part of the deal when you get saved is you can buy back that time. There's a price that's been paid, Christ, and the evil world that had you doesn't have you anymore. So take that time and redeem it because the days are evil, but God can use your time in there. It's interesting how the world can dominate six out of seven days. Assuming we take Sabbath and give it to God, 
We give the world six-sevenths of our week when it comes to work, when it comes to issues, chores that we have to do around the house, drama that we might have with other people. We find ways to redeem that time at every moment because the world doesn't or shouldn't get all six of those days. So how can I get that time back? Maybe while I'm doing chores, I can redeem that time by listening to a sermon or good Bible commentary. Maybe if I'm at work, I can be listening to music that edifies my spirit and I can be singing things in my head all day and letting the praises of the Lord come through my mouth. So if Jesus bought us with his life, the least we can start to do is think about how do we buy back moments and minutes of our day? I remember for years, my wife used to put Bible verses on the mirror in the bathroom so that while we were brushing our teeth, I'd be looking at this Bible verse and I'll be darned if I didn't learn Bible verses that without even trying. And what she was doing was, I think ingeniously, redeeming moments from our life. Taking those things that are mundane and empty and they're being redeemed for things that are holy and good. And they're renewing for our mind and rebuilding for our spirit. Verse 17, therefore, don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. If you want to know what the will of the Lord is, you read the book that he wrote. It's really simple. If you want to know what the word of the Lord was and you don't want to read, listen to it on tape. Uh, if you don't know what the word of the Lord is and you don't want to listen to it on tape and you don't like to read, go to church on Sunday mornings where they teach the Bible. Find out what God says in your life, or better yet, Paul's just going to tell us in the coming verses. Just do what he says. I like verse 17, therefore do not be unwise. That's a classy way to say what in the Greek is basically, therefore don't be stupid. I mean, literally, that's what it means. Don't be stupid. And Paul's shown this contrast in verses 1 through 15 between walking worthy and in the light or walking in the world and in the darkness. Don't be stupid. That's not a fair, balanced decision. One is obviously the better choice. So you choose to do those things, and he starts walking you through it. How do you choose to do that? You wake up. Number two, you walk with intention, and you start thinking about your time and how you spend it. If I look at your calendar and I see what you do with your minutes, I can tell you who you worship, and I can tell you who your God is, because we spend our time where our God is. It's easy. Number three, understand the will of the Lord. So wake up, redeem your time, understand the will of the Lord, and start thinking about what God's will is for your life. Read the Bible. Micah says, he's shown you, O oh man, what's good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So you don't even need to study that much. Read that one sentence, and you know what God's will is for your life. Do the things he's told you to do. Still, that idea of waking up and you start doing that, but when you wake up, you humbly start doing these kinds of things and redeeming your time and making use of it. So we become merciful, merciful, just, and humble walkers. That's what God asks of us. He doesn't ask us to be a hero on day one. In fact, he doesn't even ask that at all. Christ was the hero. We're supposed to be the servant. We humble ourselves before the Lord and worship him. Verse 18, he gives us another thing not to do. Don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. Poof! So once you wake up and you start walking circumspectly and you start redeeming your time because the days are evil, then you start understanding the will of the Lord and then you start to realize this is amazing and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you start realizing I am free from that sin that had me for years. I am living life every moment seeing how God uses my time and people's lives are being, I'm actually able to help people and bless people because I'm starting to see other people because I woke up and you start realizing what's going on and all that happens is your heart just fills with joy and you think, how do I tell more people about the Lord? What can I do to share this with other people? This verse isn't about alcohol. And a lot of people that are immature believers or non-believers will read a verse like this and just make a big deal about the alcohol. In Timothy, Paul even tells Timothy to have a drink before he goes to bed because it settles his stomach. But people will drink to the point of getting drunk. That's what the Romans did to dissipation, right? And that they would basically fill their life with these moments where they're going from party to party to party so that they can halfway feel like some shadow of life. And Paul's saying, man, you get filled with the Holy Spirit, it's better than being drunk. It's joy. It's real joy. It's not temporary joy that you wake up in the morning and have a headache over. It's joy that endures and lasts every day, all day. So if you feel like you're not very smart, read the Bible. If you feel like you're unwise, read the Bible. If you feel like you want to be drunk, don't. Do more when you worship in the Spirit. Go do a worship session. Go to a concert where they're praising the Lord. If you have foolish speaking and empty words, Paul says, speak in songs, speak in Bible verses, sing things to yourself and give thanks. We have a, a young lady at our Sunday night Bible study where we're working on Leviticus. And as we've done the lock-in, she decided, you know, I said, what are you doing with your lock-in time? And she goes, you know, I decided I was just going to start writing thank you notes to the people in my life. And she just started mailing out thank you notes to people. What an amazing witness of Christ's love in someone's heart than to take my time and redeem it to help other people have a nice, encouraging message. You're walking around like a fool? Well, find some other Christians and submit to one another, verse 21, serving and building their ministries. God doesn't call you into the kingdom and expect you to do the bulk of the work in the kingdom. In fact, he says, submit to one another in the fear of God. If you love God, Come to church and say, how can I help you with your ministry? I had a brother from Nigeria that wanted to make some videos and we were working on those. And when he first brought up the idea, he's like, we really should make some videos and put them online. And in Christ, I just felt like the spirit was saying, there's an opportunity for you, Sean. So I just turned over him to him and I said, well, okay, let's do it. Can I draft something for you to help get a script put together? Can I start outlining some things? And instantly the idea happened. And in one week he had his brother filming. We had somebody else making an intro. Uh, we had two friends from church that were going to come and get on camera. Uh, we had another friend from church who brought a camera so we could get two camera shots. It all just fell together in a week, right? And at the end of two weeks, we were filming. Just because in the spirit, he says, let's do this. And humbly, you can turn and say, how can I help you do that? If God's putting that on your heart. Let me serve. Can I, can I bring lunch? Can I provide a place to do that? Can I... I got, can I make a contact and make a connection for you and bring people together? What can I do to help more mature believers build that ministry 
in the fear of the God. The reason I'm doing this for you is because I love the Lord and you love the Lord and you have an idea to serve him. So if you're walking around like a fool, the alternative is to submit to other Christians and build their ministries and you get lifetime experiences from it. The payback is that when you're in the word, when you're singing, when you're singing songs and giving thanks all the time, your life is better and it's joyful. So be filled. It's not our intention to do this. I, I like the idea of being filled is God doing something to us. So we don't go out and fill up ourselves. We are um, being filled by God when we do that. We don't produce these moments of spiritualism or being filled with the Spirit isn't something that happens when the music is uh, moody and the lights get turned low and the smoke machines get turned on. That's not walking in the Spirit, right? Walking in the Spirit, according to Paul here, is to submit to one another in the fear of God. It's an imperative. It's not optional to be filled with the Spirit. It's what we're supposed to do. And in the Greek, that's in an essential tense, that we, to be filled with the Spirit is something that we should be essentially doing. And in that sense, you think, well, maybe being filled with the Spirit is just for that wing of the church or this wing of the church. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. If I'm just taking it at face value, he's talking to an entire congregation of people. It's not just for some of them to be filled with the Spirit. And you know, to be filled with the Spirit means um, that I am uh, getting rid of my old patterns. I'm walking circumspectly. I'm studying the Word so I know what wisdom looks like. And then I get filled with, and the word filled there is this gushing of the Holy Spirit. It's overflowing that happens. And that's something that should mark who we are and change who we are in a really powerful way. I love the idea of um, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. They're all musical. So it's almost like I hear like, you know, um, Oklahoma, where people are talking to other, or the Veggie Tales, where they're in a musical, so they start singing to one another in musical um, kinds of things. And I won't imitate it right now. You know it if you watch Veggie Tales. Psalms would have been things right out of the Psalms from the Old Testament. Hymns would have been perhaps songs that were being used in the Judaic tradition, right? So, so songs that were part of the more current. And spiritual songs were probably ones that the church was making up uh, in the joy of the Lord. So Christ is resurrected and they start writing songs. Um, that has continued for 2,000 years. We're still writing songs in the church. And the idea of music being something that we can just express ourselves and worship ourselves, that's true in both the secular world and the sacred world. When we sing, we lift up our spirits. It's a beautiful thing to do it. So when we sing to the Lord uh, and we sing to each other in the church, it's a way for us to express that joy. Dissipation is again this concept before Paul said empty. Now he says dissipation, which in the Greek is abandoned time or wasted time. The thing with alcohol that's bad is that you can't buy that time back. If you go to that party and celebrate, you don't get that night back. It's a wasted time. It's interesting right now that, and I won't go too far into the alcohol piece because I don't think this verse is about that. But in 2018, in the United States, there were 14.4 million people that had alcohol addiction. Of that 14 million people, 88,000 people died in one year because of alcohol-related overdose. So liver issues, overload, alcohol, consumption death. You don't get that life back. You don't get those moments back. You don't get those years back. 
Globally, and this is a 2012 number, 3.3 million deaths because of alcohol-related uh, um, situations. That's not including accidents. It's, it's just the chemicals in alcohol killing the body. You can't get that back. In comparison, there's been in the United States around 60,000 deaths from the COVID-19 virus compared to 14 million people that are addicted to alcohol. You don't get that time back. It's about being filled with the spirit. That's what this whole chapter has been about. It's not about the alcohol. That's a tired excuse for having spirits. <laughs> the real spirit is the Holy Spirit. In the Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, you got three different kinds of ways to do it. In other words, there's room in the church for all kinds of music, right? It's not just contemporary versus traditional. You know, you should at least get a third category, which might be reggae in your church and have a reggae service. If you're going to worship the Lord, there should be variety in it. It should be fresh. It should be new. And it should put a melody in your heart. The song should stick with you. When you go through the week or you come home from church on Sunday, those songs sticking in your head are Bible verses running through your head. If you're singing the right kinds of songs. That when you sing a song or you get a song stuck in your head, which by the way, God made our brains to get songs stuck in our head. If those songs are holy, you're meditating on the word of God day and night because you're putting awesome music into your head. Right? So you sing in public, you gush with music, you're always giving thanks, you never gripe and complain with other people, and you find blessings everywhere you go instead of finding fault. Uh, that's one lens to see the world, and I don't know if there's any better way to live life, right? Singing songs, seeing blessings, giving thanks. Uh, if there's better strategies for living life, I don't know what they are. And if there's better ways to do it or advice to live life, I would listen to it. But I'm going to be hard to convince because when you start living like that, you're happy. And it gives you true joy, not fake joy. And I think a lot of times non-Christians look at joyful Christians and just think it's fake. Okay, try it and tell me if it's fake. And give it a shot because it's a way better strategy for living. Anyways, verse 21. To one another in the fear of God. Submit to one another in the fear of God. Fearing God then becomes one of Paul's reasons for doing things. So that might mean in some ways... When someone invites us into sin or invites us into a situation and we refuse it, we're submitting not to those people, but we submit to God. And we submit to people that invite us into the church. And we submit to people that are going to bring spiritual blessing and filling into our life. So that when we hold our own ground in any kind of sinful environment, it reminds people of their sin. This creates problems in the workplace, with your friends, with even with uh, family from the past. The more you submit, in the Greek, hupotasso, the more you hupotasso, it's to put yourself under military rank of another people. In other words, the word hupotasso gets used in the Greek military, the Roman military. It's to submit yourself, not because you're, you're, you're worse than or lower than somebody else, but you realize that person's your captain. And there's a benefit to serving your captain, even if your captain is not as smart as you, not as talented as you, not as good at you, you submit to them because they're your captain. And you believe in the mission of the whole organization. So when we submit to one another in the church, which is what Paul's asking us to do, we humble ourselves and we say, how can I help? Versus saying, look at what I can do for you. 
Or we kind of say, what do you need? Versus you need me. And this church needs me to do these things for it. Submit yourself to the church. Just be blessed by the church until you see opportunities to serve and start to serve. But the hupatasso submitting is like that of an army. And it's like the, and armies have missions and they have orders. So it's the opposite of submitting, or this word hupatasso, the opposite to that is mutiny. So when you submit to God, the opposite is mutiny, which is sin, which is to not submit to God because you think you know how to live life better. So Paul contrasts those things. Again, he makes these perfect, balanced, easy decision kinds of things. So now the world might call that a bad thing. In fact, the reason why I'm going through the words to submit is because most of the time when you talk to people that aren't in the faith, submitting is a bad thing. To be submissive is this horrible, lowly thing. And that's how the world sees it. To be submissive, submissive is to be weak, to be beaten down, to be low. It's like a dog that submits because they've been hit too many times. And submission's bad. The problem is, in God's kingdom, submission is the greatest thing you can do with a free will and a free spirit. If you're powerful, if you have authority, you choose to submit. It's not the weakness of the world, it's the most powerful thing you can do is to say in love, in the freedom of me being a free agent, with the ability to do anything I want to do, I choose love and I choose to submit. Yeah, I, I could go out and do whatever I want and do as I see fit, or I could submit myself to one another in the church because I love God and I fear God. And I'm going to put myself under them like a new recruit in the military. And I'm a private. I'm lower than a private. I'm just a recruit. I'm lower than a recruit. I'm the person that carries the recruit's briefcase. The further I lower myself, the greater I am in the kingdom of God. Where the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It is not an inferior thing to submit. It's the act of somebody who's been freed and they have a choice and they have a will. To quit is what slaves do. Right? When, you, when you've been beaten so much that you are in submission, that's not the right word, the one that Paul's using. That's to just give up. But to submit to someone is to make a choice when you have every ability to make another choice. It's an act of free will. Any mission I have, then, is an act of mutiny compared to the submission of God's. If I submit to God, then I have a submission and that is whatever God's mission is, my life and my will is a submission to that versus having my own missions. So I submit my will and I, and I live in submission to God because his mission is more important than mine. The church is more important than me. The family is more important than I am. My wife is more important than I am. All the things that I want are submissions to the missions God gives a man or a woman. He says to submit to one another in the fear of God. I want to pull that idea out too. Paul never calls for Christians to submit to non-Christians. He never calls us to foolishly submit to sinners. And when someone calls us into sin, no matter what their rank is or the marital status that I have to them, when someone calls you into sin, Paul never calls people within the church to submit to people that aren't serving the king. He says that within the church you do this right? Because the mission is God's mission. So if you're submitting to others, 
outside the church, you're submitting to ungodly missions. That's not what a good soldier does. A soldier serves their authority. They follow rank. And if you're in God's army, you follow his rank. So when we sign up for the faith, we give our life. We do it to serve. We do it in love. And sometimes the world can't understand that. Why would you ever submit to another person? Why would you ever give your authority and power away? And our answer is because Jesus did. It's really simple. Because Jesus gave his life away, I'll give mine away. How much more is a, is a student than his teacher? And at some level, if my teacher gave his life to serve the world, I can give my life, life to serve him. I'm, not any, I'm still far less than my teacher, my God. And when we do that, Christians show the world what Jesus is all about. So Paul's advice to believers is to consider marriage a little differently than the world does too, but you gotta know the context. The next couple verses are ones that get taken out of context all the time by weak Christians, by non-Christians, by wishy-washy Christians. They look at this and it says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband's the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Well, you take that out of context, and you can do a lot of evil with these verses. But I think that if you're reading Paul's letter, he's already set this up that the submission happens within the church. He's already set it up that submission happens to the Lord. So if you're willing to submit to Jesus Christ, you're not doing it because you were forced to, or you were enslaved in some way, shape, or form. We submit to Christ because we love him. And Every single one of these sentences, Paul makes that clear. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. You submit it to the Lord, and God has an order for the family that is the core structure. It is our chief relationship with another human as we walk through this life together. When you're married, that's the first relationship you have. So if you want to walk filled with the Holy Spirit, start with your marriage. If you're not married, start with your family, right? It's the same idea. In fact, he goes on, children submit to your parents, right? The first thing we can do if we want to start walking in the faith, right? The first thing we can do, get darkness out of our life, walk circumspectly, learn to be wise, read the Bible and understand what God's will is for your life. Read Micah 6.8 and understand those things. Get involved in the church, start singing praise, be thankful for things, be joyful, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then start looking at your marriage Look at your close friendships and relationships and think, am I serving the people in my life? That's what Paul's talking about here. It's really in context. He's just asked all believers to submit to one another in verse 21, to give thanks in verse 20, to sing songs in verse 19, to be filled with the Spirit in verse 18, and love your family. Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. If you love the Lord and you've given your life to your Lord, give your life to that person that you're living with. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Does Christ lord over me and beat me up with insults every time I make a mistake? No, he's gracious and merciful and loving. So husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. I hope we're dealing with a Christian marriage here. Because I know some husbands that are not like Christ is to the church. 
that wrecks this image. But Paul's trying to say, if we submit to one another in the church, we create a model of Christ's love for us to everybody who sees us. When people look at your marriage, they should see what Christ's love looks like. And even though God's put an order to that relationship, that husbands are the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, he's the savior of the body. He's actually given his life for the church. He's the savior. Husbands, are you giving your life for the marriage? Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let wives be to their own husbands in everything. And the church joyfully loves on Christ. The church celebrates Christ and lifts Christ up and praises his name. How awesome is it when you say to someone, I love my husband. He's amazing and he's wonderful. A lot of people will say, what kind of marriage do you have? Because that's weird because there's not one man walking on this earth that's worthy of that kind of praise. We are, as a manhood, all sinners and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. So when you have a wife that celebrates you and praises you and lifts you up, first of all, it's self-esteem building for the husband. It's also a responsibility for the husband. Oh my goodness, she's actually respecting what I say. So, Paul's saying the same thing that is happening in the church, I want to see it in the homes too. The wives then aren't more or less than the husband. They might even be smarter, more talented, and better at things than the husband, but they choose in a military-like way to say, I'm going to submit to the authority of my dorky husband. Not because my husband's always right, not because he's sinless, not because he makes great decisions, and it's not a submission to men in general, which I think is another way these verses get twisted. Paul is not asking women to submit to men in any way, shape, or form. He's talking about Christian women marrying Christian men, and in a family situation, one man in particular, you submit yourself to. And that's a symbol of how Christ loves the world, in part because no husband is worthy of that kind of submission. And in the same way that the church submits to Christ, we're not worthy of Christ's love. We don't deserve it. I actually think the dorkier the husband, the more pronounced the witness is. Imagine this. You've got a husband that's just making horrible decisions and, and maybe he's good natured, but he's a big fat dork. And the wife just says, I adore that man. I love him. I choose to live life with him. And I'm going to help whatever mission he has in life. I'm going to help him with that mission. You think, wow, what kind of guy is this? Like, what did he do to earn somebody like that? And the witness goes up, and it's amazing. You go to a church picnic, and you have a husband and wife that just hang out and laugh together and spend time together and adore each other, and they don't talk about each other behind their backs, and they just lift each other. And, and you wouldn't believe how wonderful my wife is and how wonderful my husband is. Everybody goes home from that picnic thinking, I wish I had a marriage like that. But that marriage comes out of this God-ordained kind of order that has to it. So it also presents an image that kids might actually want to live up to. So when you have a husband and wife that love one another, and there's this understanding that they submit to one another in love, then kids think, I want to get married because that's a great way to live. If that marriage is constantly filled with strife, and they're constantly butting heads and fighting over every decision, instead of somebody just saying, Okay, on these big decisions, I'm going to share my opinion with you, but at the end of the day, you're responsible, and God holds you responsible. I submit to you. You don't have the same kinds of arguments and, and dialogues and debates, and frankly, Paul holds it up just like he does the other stuff. What's going to be better? 
you can have a marriage where you actually get along with each other because there's an understanding of that order that God creates. And you can always have resolution to situations. Um, and husbands, you're going to get three or four things that you have to do in the next few verses. So you have this environment where you have this witness to your kids, to the other people in your church, even to the unsaved world. And guess what? Satan hates that. He doesn't want an image, a model of love, sacrificial love, walking around the planet. So marriages come under attack. I remember once I went into work, and one of the ladies at work saw that I was carrying a little brown bag. And one of the things my wife does to love on me is she makes, she gets up early and makes me lunch. And she's done it for a long time, and she first started doing it saying, I think this is a way to bless my husband and make it so I don't spend as much money on going out to eat for lunch all the time. So she's trying to save some money too. But she made me lunch. It's sweet and it's nice and it's kind. And I love that about her. And I try to do everything I can do to make up for those nice little lunches I get. My coworker looks at the lunch and goes, did your wife make that for you? And I said, yeah, isn't that cool? And she just scoffed and rolled her eyes at me. and I would never make lunch for my husband. And I just think, well, I feel sorry for your husband. Like, what a horrible way to live, to be all selfish and territorial over that stuff. Consequentially, when I get a chance to get up early and make my wife breakfast, I do it with joy. I don't do it as a have to, I do it as a get to. And I think my wife would say the same thing. She doesn't make lunches because she has to. She makes them because she gets to. It's a way she can say, I love you. And the more we do that in our marriage, the better. And the more you're going to find that kind of behavior puts you under spiritual attack from other people. You want to walk a spirit-filled life and be in the battle, the spiritual battle? Just love your spouse and watch what the world does. You're going to get into those conversations with people. You're going to have those dialogues. Wives that struggle with submitting, uh, two thoughts. Give it a try and see what happens. If you have a husband who's a dork, try submitting and loving him and seeing if that changes his dorkiness. Right? Practice it. Recognize you're part of a team, and there's an order to that team. It's not a bad thing. Uh, God has a team. There's, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Throughout the entire Bible, they go in that order. God, Jesus, Holy Spirit. There's a ranking and an order to the Trinity. And Jesus doesn't get upset about that. It doesn't make the Holy Spirit less than God. In fact, they're one, and they're together. And when two people become married, they become one, just like the Trinity. It's an image of God when you have a healthy marriage. And, and love does not seek itself. Love is sacrificial. So the flesh might be ready to rule. And frankly, I think women in the flesh are ready to rule and run things and take charge of things. They're perfectly capable to do that. That's what the world says to do. That's what we're trained to do. And quite frankly, um, they could keep doing that. And most pagan religions of the time that this was written had women priests that were running their religions. So to have any sort of order or things, I, th I think the natural tendency of women is to take charge. The natural tendency of men is to let them and just become distant and distracted and say, do whatever you want to do. If you want leadership in the home to come from a husband, the wife has to give that in order for that to happen. Otherwise, most husbands, I think, won't take charge and won't lead and they'll let their wife do whatever they want to do. That's just my opinion. That's not biblical. Biblically, it says wives submit to your husbands. Try it. Give it a shot. Um, second thought is if that's not cool with you, don't get married. 
And it's really simple. I think you can live, if you don't feel like there's a man on this planet that you can submit to, then don't marry anyone. So if there's no one who you think, I love his mission and I want to be part of his mission, then don't marry anyone. And Paul says it's better to be single and serve the Lord without having those responsibilities. And it's a perfectly viable option. So if you have a song, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and a powerful marriage can be your song. It can be the picture you show to the world because you're willing to take your mission and pair it as one with somebody else's mission. As to the Lord. Paul gives reasons for doing this because he knows this isn't easy to do. This is a massive maturity step to do. And Paul gives reasons for it. If Jesus washes feet, then maybe we can have people that serve other people and to do it in love. And it's not passive and it's not weak and it's not a loss of character. In fact, if you read Proverbs 31, it's a description of an amazing woman, a woman with strength and character and leadership um, that's tender and a good partner and loving and active and confident. The Bible, in fact, everywhere the Bible goes in culture, the, uh, the status of women is elevated. And it's not any different here. This isn't the diminishing of women. It's a call for women to be something different. That when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're, and you're in, a, in a marriage, that you can do something to show people Christ's love. This is not about the husband either, and it's not about what kind of guy they are. But boy, if you think is, this is a guy that's going to be ungodly and not live a godly life, don't get married to him. And then you won't have any troubles. So this is people that are filled with the Spirit. They're singing songs in the home. They're thankful. Every word out of their mouth is in thankfulness. And then you got this opportunity to just show this love and thankfulness to things. Then husbands, you get your say here too. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and he gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he should be holy and without blemish. Whoa! So Paul, in true nature, is not really putting together a male-dominant society. He's creating a whole army of men that give their lives up for their wives. And I think this is the challenge, and it's reciprocal. If husbands are willing to give their life for the wife, it's a lot easier to say, I'll be part of your mission. I'll submit to that mission. I'll, I'll give you submission. If wives are willing to serve and follow a guy, it's a lot easier to be willing to give your life for that woman because she's a gem. She's precious in your life. And it's reciprocal. There's an order to it that works together. And those kinds of marriages are the happy old couple in their 80s sitting on the back porch laughing and talking about life and being thankful for everything they have. The alternative is whatever the TV is selling us as the newest version of gender relations which generally ends in divorce, anger, madness, people yelling at each other, and nonsense. I'll take this, and I'll take this image of the Bible. So it's always easy to expect the other side to step up to what God's telling them. So it's easy, I think, for husbands to read what the wives should be doing, and it's easy for the wives to read what the husbands should be doing, but all that proves is that our hearts want this, and our hearts desire what this looks like, because we want to see it. So husbands in the flesh might be ready to be passive when they get married and just let their wife make all the decisions. They might even be given to that, to let her run everything. She can pick every paint color. She can decide what we do, what kind of car we get. And the flesh might be willing then for guys to go serve themselves. Honey, you do what you want. I'm going to go join the fishing league. I'm going to go join the bowling league. 
I'm going to go join the gun club. I'm going to go do anything that gets me out of this house for as many hours as possible. That's what I'm going to do. And I think in the flesh, men have that tendency. And they can do that very easily. And I think that there's some stereotyping there, but it's rooted in some truth. The flesh gets tired of these things, and the eye starts to wander to other things that might give life. The Song of Solomon, the writer wishes, Solomon wishes, that you can look at your wife and she's the gem of your eye, that you see her and she's beautiful to you, even in her old age, that her character is what makes you sparkle. And the thing that helps to give you life is the Lord God Almighty, and you turn to your wife and you say, I love you, I'll give my whole life for you. What does it take? So God wants more out of men than going to entertain themselves with a computer game. There's just a higher calling for men and these verses sum it up artfully in a short amount of time. But look at all that's here. Giving himself. Wives, you submit. Husbands, you die. You give up your life. You're willing to give your life. And it, I think in some levels, it's easier to submit to somebody else when they're willing to die. It's easier to die for someone that submits to you. He might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. These words have defined how I try to process my own marriage. What does it mean to wash my wife? With the, with the washing of water by the word. The word here is not logos, the written word, and I think this helps. The word that gets used here is rhema, which is the spoken word, right? So whatever word they're talking about here is not the text word of, of the Old Testament, but rhema, the spoken word. It's what I say to my wife that washes her. And the water should be the living water, so it's both sacred and it's something I can do mundane with my voice. So when I use my tone and my voice with my wife, and this is something I still work on, I should be lifting her up. My tone should be one of respect. My language should be one of admiration and thankfulness and praise. I might even, if I'm a real man, sing a song for my wife. Because that's what Paul just got done telling us to do. Same set of thoughts that Paul's talking about, right? Whatever I say to my wife should sanctify and cleanse her. I might have to admonish my wife. I might have to praise my wife and lift her up. One of the chief psychological struggles of young ladies in the United States is a, a self-image of their physical body being less than or uglier than they think, they think it should be. Bad self-image is a plague in the United States of America right now. How would that change if the men in this country started to speak truth to their wife? You're beautiful to me. You're all I need. You have all the stuff that I need to be happy as a husband. And when you think about even the mundane use of those words, to continually be speaking truth to the women in our lives and to wash them, and washing happens daily. This idea that you're daily saying things like, thank you, having a spirit of praise, daily singing songs, and I mean literally singing songs around the house. It's a more joyful way to live. You don't understand it until you do it. To present her to himself, God, a glorious church. So, if the husband's job is to love our wives, verse 25, just like Christ loved us, to sanctify and cleanse them with our words that we speak, and that I might present her to Christ himself, the capital H there means we're talking about Jesus, 
a glorious church. There should be an element to where when you love your wife and you give your life up for her, you hold her up like a trophy. And we use the phrase trophy wife. And this is in that spirit. And regardless of what your wife looks like physically, because we're washing her with the water of the word that I might present her to Jesus, a glorious church. The church as a whole needs to be filled with both men and women that love each other. And that's our presentation. It's how other people see the church. You have people that might never walk into a church building, but they know you as a couple and they know who you are and they see what the church looks like. The love between a husband and wife, especially the love that a man gives to his wife, is the kind of love that Jesus gives to the church. And when we do that, we show people a mirror of Christ's love. People should look at our marriages and not see a fake front because front, people see through hypocrisy in a second. They should see an honest level of love that starts with daily washing in the word, which starts with an attitude of self-sacrifice. I'll do anything for that woman. When that happens, people can see the church as it should be. And they know that it's real. There's nothing more telling about a guy than how his wife talks about him. And if she admires him, then you know he's worth admiration because she knows everything about that guy. She knows what he does in the morning. She knows what he does at night. She knows what his sins are. She knows his attitude, disposition, and tone of voice towards his children and towards her. She knows all of it. And when a wife respects her husband, you know that that guy's the real deal. The relationship between husband and wife is one of the tools to present the church, not only to God, but to other people. It's a glorious church when that happens. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing has nothing to do with physical wrinkles, right? The idea is that when a man falls in love with a woman, as you age together, I think God changes your view of that woman. And what you see is what, the, what she is becoming in Christ. And that's a beautiful, amazing thing. The flesh in women, the world, thinks that over time women lose their beauty. That's what everything in the world tells us. But the opposite is true in Christ. In the word, women gain glory. Over time, the older they get and the more thankful they are and the more they have songs on their lips, the more they know the word of God because their husband washes them in it, verbally, even reading it together, praying together. Women become beautiful. They are the staple of the church, loving, caring women that have been fed and cared for and provided for by their husbands. There's no spot or wrinkle in that. There's a purity to it that's beautiful. Truth is, and one example is Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was older in years, but men looked at her and they admired her. She called her husband Lord, literally called Abraham Lord, and she served and, and went with whatever his mission and plan was, even though his plans were stupid sometimes really stupid. Even though some of his plans put her in danger, she still submitted to them. And she was admired by kings for her ability to love Abraham and to show people what the church looks like. Any such thing is a great phrase. Paul, the trained scholar, doesn't use phrases like this a lot. Any such thing means he doesn't have words left to explain it. Paul is out of words, and it's a great thing. I think what it is, too, is it's a guy thing. It's hard to explain how beautiful women become when they're godly. It's really hard to explain it. And I think that's why Paul just says any such thing. And he's not even married, but he gets it. 
he gets the idea that a noble woman, a Proverbs 31 woman, is a glory. And the earth needs to be filled with these regal, noble, healthy, joy-filled, loving, singing women that's beyond words and it's a gift to our culture and it's a gift to our church. Men, it's your job to foster and cultivate that. If you're not up for that job, if you're not up for giving your life to making something holy and without blemish, and that's your goal, to make something sacred, don't get married. If you're not willing to give up your life for another human being, don't get married. And that option is a viable, truthful option. And I'll say the same thing to men as I said to women. You don't have to get married. Paul says, if you want to be single, be single. It's perfectly okay to do that. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Again, we keep seeing that phrase. This is a model of how the Lord loves the church. So where the wife might be a helpmate to the husband, the husband is nourishing and caring for and cherishing his wife because she's the most precious thing that God has given him in his life. And Paul knows it. He says they ought to because men struggle with this sometimes and they fall short, but they ought to be doing this to nourish and cherish them. Boy, I know a lot of guys that nourish and cherish things that aren't their wife and they nourish and cherish their collections. They nourish and cherish their, their man caves. They nourish and cherish their, their, their shiny toys. And they say, look at how awesome this is. And when friends come over, they brag about it. Paul's saying, why don't you try that with your wife? Try it. Brag about how awesome your wife is. And one of two things will happen. One, people will respect it or people will absolutely hate it because they don't have that kind of relationship. And it drives them crazy that there's something better out there. And that's when you invite them to church. They could have that relationship. They got to just choose it. Dave Gusick puts it this way. The wife is the one who is kept, preserved, guarded, shielded, and provided for by her husband. That's the relationship. As Christ nourishes and cherishes the church, so the husband nourishes and cherishes the wife. And the wife should realize that it is her position in, his, in this relationship. Not so bad when that's the trade-off. Men liking their wife as they like their own bodies speaks for itself. Paul does a good job of explaining that. You don't hate your own body, you take care of it. You don't hate your wife, you take care of her. This is God's plan. If you want to manage a household, that's the qualification for serving the church in 1 Timothy 3. A man who can't love on his wife has no business in leadership of the church. A man whose wife does not speak well of him because of his treatment of her has no business in any kind of leadership. He shouldn't be teaching, preaching, or leading in any way. It's their responsibility. It's your job to present her because God holds that man responsible for his whole household. And he has since the beginning of the Bible. So this is a key biblical concept. If you don't like it, first I'd say try it because everyone who actually lives this kind of marriage and does this uh, has a happy marriage. It actually works, and it's in part because that's how God made it. Genesis 18:9. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord and do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. God is going to bless Abraham because of how he treats his family. You want to be walking in the Spirit? Start with your family. Jacob puts away his idols. In Genesis 35, 2, and he does it for his whole family. Joseph, as number two in Egypt, still nourishes and cares for his father, Genesis 47, 12. 
It's a spiritual duty for the family to have the father do the spiritual sacrifices. Leviticus 16, 17, Deuteronomy 15, 20. And God deals with the head of household and holds them accountable for their wives and children that build a spiritual unit called a household, which is the core of the nation of Israel. And it's the core of the church in this passage. God's always had this order to family, that this is how it's going to be. And God does not hold wives accountable for sinful husbands. He holds husbands accountable for sinful wives. That's a responsibility. Men, before you get married, think about that. Do you want your spiritual eternity to be based on the behavior of people you have in your household? You better think about who you bring into your household. You're responsible for them. As Christ loves the church, it's not an act of force. You don't yell at people to get them to do what you want to do. You love them so much that they do it out of a spirit of joy. Nobody became a Christian because Jesus yelled at them or that they lost an argument with somebody. We serve Christ because we know he loves us and we volunteer to submit to Christ. Your whole family should know that you love them so much, so sacrificially, that they'll give their submission to you because they love you. Accountability. There's an exception in Numbers 5.31. When a wife is off sinning, God doesn't hold the husband accountable. So when she's willfully rebelling against God, God has a brain and he knows how to judge and to do it fairly. So for the bulk of the word of God, the man's responsible in another way, Deuteronomy 29.29, the man's responsible for teaching his family the Bible, the whole and entire word of God. And Paul writes this letter and makes our job even harder because now there's more of the Bible we have to teach. But it's our job to teach it. And if you don't do it, you're held accountable for that. So man comes with this headship, but it also comes with all these accountabilities that they have to have. Hebrews 13, 17. If a soul goes away in your household, you're held to task. So for uh, this is a great and I think a manly burden that you love people so much that they see your love for them and they want Jesus' love for them when you're gone. And the only thing that compares to a, head of, a man's love for his wife and children is the love of Christ for the church. There's trust in this, even for an ungodly wife or an ungodly husband, for the spouse to choose, I'm going to start living like the Bible tells me to. There is a trust that happens between God and that person that there will be a blessing in it. So wives with sinful husbands and husbands with sinful wives start doing what the Bible says and trust that God will do what he says and he'll heal that marriage and help it happen. Wives, take some pity on your husband. Husband, have some love and care for your wives. If you're not ready to do those things, you're really not ready for marriage. You're still a child. And that's okay. Maybe you want to just serve God directly and you don't want to be this model of the church for the rest of the world to see. But God holds marriage at a high level of respect and sacredness. And Paul writes about it as such. These arguably go against the flesh to sacrifice our life, to be accountable for other people, to provide and wash people in the word, to cherish and adore somebody. Those arguably go against the flesh of most guys. But it's not what we're born into that matters. It's what we become in Christ when we walk in the light and step out of the darkness. When we wake up in the spirit, these things become amazing. And people that do it realize, wow, this is how I should have been doing it all along. 
and it can be tough for that to happen. So when there's one body, there's one member, there's different parts to it, that's the image of the church, that's the image of the marriage. There's one marriage, the two become one, and there's different parts and different roles. So Paul basically says it's a serious thing, and it's a serious thing to get involved in. Verse 30, for we are members of his body and of his flesh and of his bones, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There it is. That's the order of creation. Genesis 2.24. God's not arbitrary about this. Men and women are different, 1 Corinthians 11. And the image gets brought back that we are not all the same in the church. We have different talents, skills, and abilities. Paul says that in other places. But we come together as a body, and in that body, that body serves Jesus Christ. So new families are founded when you leave your old family and you cleave to your new family. Leaving and cleaving. The churches are built the same way. We leave the old wife, life and we cleave to the new life and we walk in the spirit. We stay away from partaking in the things of darkness and we partake in the things of light. We leave and we cleave. And that's how marriages start and that's how the church starts. It's the same kind of thing. And the hardest thing is to start and it's not easy, but once you start, it actually works. Makes me think of the well story where there's this well out in the middle of the desert there's a little sign on it. People come walking up to it. and There's nothing around for miles. And there's just a little jar of water sitting next to the well, the pump well. And on it says a little sign that says, pour it all out. It works. It really does. And you think, well, I could drink that water because I'm thirsty. And I might even die of thirst. Or I could trust what this thing says. I could trust the word. And I could put that water in and prime the pump with it and hopefully get that pump to start gushing. But when it says pour it all out, it works, it really does. It means I can't just do half a jar and drink the other half. i got to put the whole of my trust in my life into that thing and pump it. My testimony is it works. It really does. But you got to pour your whole life into it. You read what Paul says and you do it. And this is a great mystery, verse 32. It's a mystery. I don't know that the pump is going to produce water before I pour the jar into it. I have no idea of knowing that. But once I do, I don't need faith anymore because when I start pumping that pump and, the, and it primes and the water starts pouring out of it everywhere and I can wash in the water and I can be cleansed by it and my thirst can be quenched by it and it's overflowing, it's gushing with a spirit-filled life. How do you explain that to people? Well, you put a bit of that in a jar you leave it next to the pump and you put the word on it and say, pour it all out, it works. It really does. And that's all that believers can say to non-believers. Try it. It works. It really does. And before you argue about the role of men and women in the family and you reinterpret it or culturally contextualize it or come up with exegesis and hermeneutics and theology that recreates the role of men and women, just try what it says with all your heart. It works. It really does. And that's all people can say with joy and grace as people, the world goes its own way and every TV show and every movie tells you there's other ways to do sex and there's other ways to do relationship and there's other ways to do this stuff. No, there's, there's really not. And when someone's just gushing with living water and spiritual water flowing out and over them and then you got other people that are bitter, angry and yelling and protesting against each other, I don't know, I'll pick the joyful people, the quiet, peaceful, happy people that are living their life because they poured all the water in and the pump really works. 
verse 32, that's a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. In other words, Paul's not necessarily speaking about marriages. He's speaking about Christ and the church and how we show people the church through our marriages. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul simplifies it in verse 33. In case all of that other stuff got to be too much, he just simplifies it. Love each other and let people see that you love each other. Do sweet things for each other and let the world see it. Brag about your wife. Brag about your husband. Respect your husband. Love your wife. I think verse 33 really sums it up. But you can always go back and take the other ones out of context if you want to debate. But instead of debating, you can just put the water in the pump and give it a go. So we choose to live circumspectly. We choose to read the words so we can get wisdom. We choose to sing songs, right? These things aren't natural in the flesh. We choose to have loving marriages. And when you choose all those things, get ready because Satan hates that stuff. He hates it. Because now people are living in the freedom and joy of Jesus Christ and they're living spirit-filled lives. Because dang it, if my home life is awesome, my work life can be a mess. But I got joy every night when I come home. Most of the world lives the opposite. They've got havoc when they come home and chaos and they just can't wait to get out of that house to go somewhere else. Well, that's how Satan wants you. He wants you in prison to the chaos. God wants order in your life so that you can have joy and peace and every single area of our culture pushes against the godly marriage, makes fun of it, mocks it, creates alternatives to it. Every other single area does it. You don't see any network or news station talking about a godly marriage and how wonderful it is. But the truth is there, and it's the reality, and you might be all by yourself in a desert when you try out a godly marriage, but pour it all out because it works. It really does. So what's coming in the next chapter? is the same thought. Children's obey your parents, submit to them, and, and then and parents care for your kids. Workers submit to your bosses, and bosses care for your workers. Then when you do all these kinds of things, good marriages, good parentship, good working relationships, and the spirit's just happening everywhere, then he tells you, get on the armor of God because Satan's coming. When you do these things and you live a spirit-filled life, you might not be evangelizing to the Amazonians off the first night of your Christian walk, but Satan is coming at you when you start healing your relationships, healing your friendships, working with people in honest and true ways. And Paul ends his letter to the Ephesians with the armor of God, some of the greatest, one of the most wonderful passages in the Bible. And we'll spend some time on it. So gear up, church. It's coming. If you have a whole community of people living like this, God's going to joyfully see it through. And you're going to see that it's amazing and that your life floods with the Holy Spirit. And it's so simple and easy to do. You just got to get past resistance to the idea that we should be loving one another. And that might take some time and effort. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for Ephesians 5. We thank you for just a thoughtful time to, to understand and hear your word through Paul to us. Lord, we know your Holy Spirit is in every word. We know that your power and your might is in every piece. We know that you made us. We know that you know how we work better than we do. And Lord, we've tried to live our own lives and it just doesn't work. So we give them to you for what it's worth. You can have it. Lord, we submit to you freely, without force, without being compelled to, without some magical force. And Lord, you never yelled at us. You never accused us. 
You just said, come eat at my table. Give up your sin. Lord, we give it all up. We pour it out for you. And in that, Lord, I just pray for each person that might hear this, that you turn to your spouse and you shower them with love. And you start a walk with your spouse that's sacrificial because they might not be worthy of that love. But I wasn't worthy of that love from you either, Lord. So, Lord, I ask for you to just fill people with the Spirit that in the same way you loved us while we were still sinners, we can do that in our relationships, that we don't have to have perfect spouses. We just have to have a perfect God. And, Lord, we submit that to you, and we lift you up in Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.